Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. My name is Tyler, I'm your host, and we are continuing our study in the Song of Solomon, and we are going to be covering a very small portion today, and it's going to get a little deeper in some ways than we usually go, but it's all going to point us back to the Gospel, so let's dive in. Uh, picking up in verse 12, While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me, in the vineyards of Engedi. This passage is where we start seeing some of the strange language in Song of Solomon that we modern people don't know what to do with. Um, Solomon is using imagery that we don't. Um, he's using language we don't use. And so it's very easy to shy away from the imagery here, and I'm going to do the best that I can to speak to this imagery, um, not in a pornographic or weird way, but to just see what what this means um, this passage set before us raises some interpretive problems um, it's it's laden with intimate language and assumptions are easily made but I, I don't think these problems are such if we remember the genre and the interpretive history of this work and start off with that first line while the king is on his couch if you're like me, and you grew up hearing this book presented as being about um, sex and the need for abstinence, you got a little confused when you saw the king is on his couch. Other translations say bed. But the Hebrew word here is wildly different. We're not talking about the bedroom. The Hebrew word that is rendered here as couch or bed um, is found in the Old Testament elsewhere to mean surroundings. First Kings chapter 6 says he carved all of the surrounding temple walls with carved engravings, cherubim, palm trees, and flower blossoms in the inner and outer sanctuaries. Second Kings 23, then the king commanded the high priest Hilkiah and the priests of the second rank and the doorkeepers to bring out of the Lord's sanctuary all the articles made for Baal, Asherah, and all the stars in the sky. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. 
Then he did away with the idolatrous priests the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the cities of Jer Jerusalem and in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. They had burned incense to Baal and to the sun, moon, constellations, and all the stars in the sky. So what do those two passages have in common? They contrast the expression of the temple and the expression of pagan idols. You might say art um, is part of the context here, artistic expression. And so we have this word being used by Solomon in his song. And so we have in Solomon's song a piece of Hebrew poetry that seems to be capturing this idea of beauty. Um, when we read this this passage um, talking about um, her figure in very specific ways, um, this is a picture of natural beauty. The one she loves is as flowers. The love of Christ for his church takes the form of sweet-smelling perfume and flowers. And though he is far away in his kingly surroundings, do, doing his king stuff, his beauty is as real and as tangible as the flowers outside. At that, the object of her love is real when he's not physically there. And one thing we've seen with Song of Solomon thus far is there seems to be an eschatological component. There seems to be this um, dynamic that they are apart. That while they are spoken for, they are apart, and the way I look at that is that um, the woman is longing for the king to come back, which points us ahead to the return of Christ. But the, the context here is that, for whatever reason, the man is not here, and she is longing to be with the one she loves. And so she pens us. Um, while the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. That's, that's, we can take that literally, that, okay, so while he's away, this perfume releases its fragrance. It was not uncommon in that time to wear oils, to wear uh, sweet-smelling um, fragrances. But then verse 13 says, the one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me. That it goes from talking about literal perfume to the one she loves being like the perfume. And so this is a this is the picture is being painted of one of one of one of beauty. This is like I said, this is not how we talk. And this is um this book is rough. I'm not gonna lie. This is a hard book because we don't talk like this. We don't we don't think like this. And so we've got to get out of our Western American mind and look at these pictures of beauty in the Old Testament. And part of the reason that that's so hard to do is because beauty is a different concept to us than it was then. Or even in the days of the early church. Um, but what do I mean by beauty? What am I, why am I throwing out this word so much? Well, Augustine said that Speaking to God in one of his prayers, you are the highest good and beauty and the light which we can know and understand. The ancient Hebrews were not necessarily focused on a beautiful aesthetic, that is the um, study of art and beauty. 
the Greeks were very big on ornamentation, on decoration, on aesthetics and appearances. But beauty was a quality that the Old Testament first and foremost applies to God and to his creation. Psalm 90 says, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Isaiah 61, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness. The ancient thinkers spoke of three abstract qualities that were unbound by time and culture. Those three were truth, goodness, and beauty. The philosophers of old called these the transcendent I'm sorry, transcendental virtues. And we as people who believe in God, we as believing people see that these three proceed from the character of God. God is the archetypal truth goodness and beauty. He is the original um, blueprint of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, one, one author put, the true, the good, and the beautiful were thus believed to be objective properties of parts of reality independent of individual or cultural tastes or beliefs. That is to say that these are absolutes. These aren't um, things we interpret differently. This isn't something that's bound by culture. Um, and that's not how we talk. That's not how we see beauty in the 21st century. It is very much a preferential thing that this is beautiful to me. Um, but the understanding for under the centuries was that this is an absolute. God speaks to us of beauty. Why? Because we have cannibalized beauty to make it something more subjective. But beauty, if, if God is beautiful... If there is beauty in God, then beauty must be objective. It must be something fixed. But we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. By equating personal preference with objective reality, we become gods of our own worldview. Thus, when God speaks of beauty in his word as a thing unbound by the chains we put on it, we are called into a world more beautiful than the one we created in our depraved minds. It says in Romans that though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, trading the worship of the in invisible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. That's how we approach beauty in this world as fallen people. We cheapen its concept to make it more palatable to us in our depraved mindset. But it's an attribute of God. Therefore, it has purpose. It has definition. And so when we read about beauty, when we see depictions of beautiful things in the Old Testament, it is in part an invitation out of that chaotic beauty we've created into the beauties of God. Um, one one professor recently commented on the place of beauty in our culture recently. And he says, as our culture is facing a moment of crisis on various fronts, there have been a lot of popular attempts to criticize woke culture, post-modernity, and radical gender politics. 
As I listened to and read some of these popular voices, it became increasingly clear that many cultural clinic critics don't have much of a solution to our problems. People are recognizing that something is wrong. People recognize that something is wrong, but they don't often get to the root of these issues. It's one thing to poke fun at liberals on TikTok, but another to provide a positive vision of what it is that the culture needs to recapture. And thus, the societal problem with beauty stems from our divorce from the source. When everything is beautiful, nothing is. So let's come back to Song of Solomon here. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. Like I said, this is, this is an image of a, an actual thing that actual people did. But verse 2 brings us into um, the imagery based on that thing that actual people do. And what's being conveyed here is that her love is not present. This is the setting. The conundrum of, subject, of subjective beauty is that what happens when we can't see it. When the thing is not present, does it still hold these virtues? Subjectivism says no. If beauty is in the eye of the holder, then this is where that logically leads. But the one that the church woman loves in Song of Solomon is just as real to her away as when he is present. So much so that it is the one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. Despite the fact that he's not physically there, she is cognizant that he is still real. She is still he is still real to her, and she is still moved by all that he is. Isaac Watts um, comments, as myrrh new bleeding from the tree, such is a dying Christ to me. And while he makes my soul his guest, my bosom, Lord, shall be thy rest. There's there's meditation here on who Christ is, even when we cannot physically see him. Why? Because he all he's always there. He didn't cease to be. We can't see him. Psalm forty five says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You're, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, meaning our God, has anointed us with the oil of joy more than your companions. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. Now, there's all this talk about oil and myrrh, which we see here. The aroma of perfume is reminding her of her love. And in other places in the Old Testament, perfume has sacrificial understandings. It says in Leviticus that the sons of Aaron, the priest, will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on top of the burning wood on the altar. The offerer is to wash its entrails and legs with water. Then the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that's a key phrase in the book of Leviticus, is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Offerings to God are to him as a pleasant aroma. This is how the Old Testament speaks. Is it, it, it describes offerings to God as a sweet smell, as a pleasing aroma. And so by applying similar imagery to the woman in Song of Solomon, we have a picture of union with him who gave himself for us. 
you shall ever be near our hearts with this pleasing aroma as the imagery of the sachet does demonstrate. Moving on from myrrh to flowers. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. Now the one she loves is likened to the pleasantries of a garden. More than a smell, but a sight, an environment. The love of God is articulated as an aesthetic, as beauty and art, as harmonious qualities that are pleasant to be experienced. What does that tell us about ourselves? The beauty of the world not only testifies to God's wisdom in creating it, but it is a reflection of God's own beauty. The question posed by these lines in Song of Solomon is not, is God beautiful? But rather, can we see that he is beautiful? Or have we been so cannibalized, have we so cannibalized the idea of beauty that we are desensitized to the beauties of God? That we have no real concept of beauty. Another line from Isaac Watts, Let him embrace my soul and prove mine interest in his holy love. The voice that tells me thou art mine exceeds the blessings of the vine. If we cannot see this beauty, then it is an indication of our need to be sanctified in the spirit. Beauty is an attribute of God. Therefore, one, to recognize beauty is a proof that we are made in his image. And two, to be conformed to the image of the Son is to be saturated with God's worldview. One, where truth, goodness, and beauty proceed from himself. And so the content of beauty shows us shows how far from the character of God we are. And the distance that he traveled in order to reconcile us to himself and cause us to bear his image and likeness. The issue of beauty is not that it's not there. It's that we are, in our depraved worldview, unable to see it. Uh, let's flip over to Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, for a brief moment. Jeremiah 17 is another passage with a picture. And um, in verse 5, it says, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. The King James has a little more bite to it. It says, Cursed is the man who trusteth in man, who maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. It says that he will be like a keith. I'm sorry, like a heath, like a like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see when good cometh, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness. That is the picture of of us outside of Christ. Is we're like the shrub in the desert. That you don't. There's not really a purpose to shrubs in the same way that there is plants in a garden. They just kind of appear. They're like weeds. They're they're wild. They're unruly. They just kind of appear. Um, the Bible says you are like a shrub in the desert. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the dry places in the wilderness in a salt land where no one lives. That is the state of our hearts. That is the state of 
us outside of Christ is we are like the shrub in the desert that is devoid of goodness in water. Verse 7. Blessed is the, is, the, is the man who trusteth in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. And incurable who can understand it I the Lord examine the mind I test the heart to give to each according to his way according to what his actions deserve if we cannot discern good if we can't see what is good true and beautiful it is because we are apart from Christ it is because we are saturated with a worldview that does not line up with Christ, with the heart of God. And so for us to be sanctified in the Spirit gradually, progressively throughout our lives is to be pulled out of that way of thinking and to be brought into his worldview, his way of thinking, his mindset. Not in the way we become God, but that we more adequately bear his image because we were made in his image and by sin that image has been defaced but through the work of, of Christ on the cross and through the work of the Spirit in regeneration and sanctification of making dead people alive we are being brought back to bearing that image if we be in Christ 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 says with we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory that is from the Lord who of I'm sorry this is from the Lord who is the Spirit therefore since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy we do not give up instead we have renounced secret and shameful things not acting deceitfully or distorting the Word of God but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. The concept of beauty shows us how far we have fallen, shows us the divide that exists because of sin. It shows us that we are not God, but we have made ourselves to be God by creating our own standards of beauty, goodness, and truth. And by definition, that's idolatry. That's pride. And so when we talk about the beauties of God, it is an invitation out of the, out of the God complex 
to behold the God who is, not the God I would create. And so in closing, I leave you with that passage from Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. He who makes a fortune unjustly is like a partridge that hatches eggs it didn't lay. In the middle of his life, his riches will abandon him. So in the end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.